0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures, stamping, problems. You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years
1: created by Carl Tsipras the, Start Change
2: the Hub is about impact. 90%.
3: The Hub is for everyone.
2: Welcome to our workshop on rethinking democracy in an age of pandemic. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, our research institute in the arts and humanities at Trinity College Dublin here in Ireland. And I'm particularly delighted to be co hosting this event. Uh, with Professor Eileen Galuli, who is the Director of the Society of Fellows and the Heyman Centre for the Humanities at Columbia University in uh, New York. Eileen, great to see you. Uh, also lovely to see colleagues in the Zoom Room from Trinity, Columbia, the Universities of Sao Paulo, Virginia, Bielestock, Utrecht, JNU, Ambedkar, and, and many more. We're joined by journalists, authors, arts practitioners, as well as representatives from the world of policymaking, enterprise, civic society, and cultural organizations. We're also delighted to welcome uh, those of you who are tuning in on Facebook. Uh, and uh, we're very grateful to Irish Central for partnering uh, with us again. It makes such a difference in terms of getting the message out there. This is the fourth of a five part workshop organized by the Hub and the Hayman in response to COVID-19. If you missed the first three, you can watch them on the Trinity Longroom Hub Facebook page or listen to the recordings on the Hub website. The workshop series developed out of a longer partnership between the two institutions, including an 18 month global humanities institute on the Crisis of Democracy, which was funded by the Consortium of Humanities Centres and Institutes and by the Mellon Foundation. And we're continuing to work together and we recently submitted an EU uh, Horizon uh, 2020 project on participatory and deliberative democracy called Isagaria. And again in the room, I'm so delighted to see so many colleagues uh, from our GHI and uh, Isagaria. Uh, Anyway, great to see you all. Um, Why this topic? Life as we know it has changed. Uh, This series asks, what does COVID-19 mean for democracy worldwide? In the workshop today, we want to interrogate how the virus has changed our day-to-day, our everyday lives. Worldwide, billions of people are living under some sort of lockdown. Or some sort of restrictions. In the most extreme cases, permits have been required to leave the house at all. Universities and schools are closed, so too are most offices, restaurants, museums, shops, pubs, especially in an Irish context, that's a big one, and the list could go on. For those fortunate enough to have the technology, everything has moved online. We've created new routines, Uh, And as we start to come out of lockdown into new phases and new unknowns, we're going to have to learn how to adapt again and to live with the virus and deal with its lasting economic, social, health, cultural impacts. So what does it all mean uh, for us? And that's what our panel uh, will be addressing. As is our practice, Um, we have three speakers, and as you'll know, each will speak for up to nine minutes. And then it's over to you, the participants in our Zoom room, and to our audience on Facebook. We really want you to participate. If you're in the Zoom room, you can join the conversation in one of two ways. You can raise your digital hand and click on the icon labeled participants, uh, and then on the uh, raise hand function which is in the bottom of the window on the right side of your screen. And when you're called on, um, uh, we will unmute you or you will be unmuted um, uh, and we'll let you ask your question. There won't be any video, though. The other way is you can submit your questions through the discussion, uh, uh, through the Q&A function. Um, And you can do that at any point throughout the discussion and I'll read your question for you. So all of this has been pasted into the comment function, the chat function, so you can see how to ask a question. If you're on Facebook, please do post your questions in comments and we'll collect these and I'll ask them on your behalf. As you ask a question, it's great to know who you are and where you're joining us from. Um, Our audience have have been truly global uh, for the other three workshops. And I know it's the same today. We're also very aware there are many experts in the Zoom room and uh, it would be lovely to be able to call on you. So I'm just preparing you for that. Um, and if that does happen, uh, Francesca will invite you to un- unmute yourself. Um, uh, uh, so, so please do. Um, we'll also be tweeting with the handles at tlrhub and at S-O-F Hayman. Um, and please use the hashtag hubmatters. Again, we'll uh, put those details uh, in the uh, chat function. And now to business. We've three fabulous uh, speakers today. I'm really excited uh, 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 about this um, uh, conversation. We're going to start with Rishi Goyle. Uh, who is the Director of Medicine, Literature and uh, Society at Columbia University, as well as an emergency medicine doctor. Rishi has been working on the front line. And Rishi, I think it's very important um, that we acknowledge just the incredible job that you and everybody who works on the front line has done. Obviously, you've been in New York, uh, but we are so humbled um, by the amazing sacrifices people um, in Ireland, in the United States and around the world are making. So thank you very much uh, uh, for that. And obviously we'll hear something about that. But you're also broadly interested in the intersection of medicine and culture, and more specifically interested in the areas of medical cognition and identity and representation after illness. So uh, Rishi is our first speaker and you're very welcome indeed. Um, I am going to introduce our second and third speakers, though, before handing over to Rishi. Our second speaker today is Shane O'Mara. And Shane is a professor of experimental brain research and the former director of the Institute of Neuroscience at Trinity. Uh, His work explores brain systems and supporting uh, learning, uh, memory, uh, and cognition and brain systems affected by stress and depression. He had a blockbuster recently on torture, but has also brought out another absolutely cracking book uh, entitled In Praise of Walking, the new science of how we walk and why it's good for us. Um, And there couldn't be a more timely moment for this, uh, uh, Shane, and delighted to say that the new edition has just been uh, released in the United States. So obviously do buy a copy if you can and support our publishers and uh, uh, our authors. So Shane, you're also very, very welcome. Our third panellist um, is Rita Duffy. Uh, Rita is currently artist-in-residence at the Trinity Lawn Room Hub. She is one of Northern Ireland's um, uh, groundbreaking artists who began her work concentrating primarily on the narrative uh, tradition. Her art is often autobiographical, including themes and images of Irish identity, history and politics. And it has been a privilege having Rita as a fellow in the hub. She began her fellowship on Brexit Day when we hung her enormous raft of the Medusa across our building. Uh, Now, the raft of the Medusa was to symbolize the chaos associated with Brexit, Brexit, uh, which is still obviously uh, very much part uh, 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 of our world albeit that it has been slightly displaced uh, uh, by uh, uh, COVID-19 and the current crisis around the pandemic. But, Rita, you're also extraordinarily uh, welcome. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, if I could invite our first uh, speaker uh, and turn to Rishi, please.
3: Thank you, Jane. Um, Thank you to everyone at the Trinity Long uh, Room Hub. Uh, I'll begin. On a recent Zoom call, a colleague in Kathmandu mentioned how clean and sweet the air seemed. You have all seen, I'm sure, the many color-coded satellite images of improved air quality and lower levels of pollution, especially over the megacities of the Global South. Supposedly, from Mumbai to Tel Aviv, wild animals are returning to reclaim their heritage and land. Even in New York City, many describe the quiet of the streets, punctuated only by an increase in birdsong. Well, maybe not just birdsong, Also, ambulance sirens. Ambulance call volumes in New York City nearly doubled from late March to early April. But they only increased in lower income zip codes, while they decreased or were level in higher income areas where many residents fled the city. The quiet of the city streets all over the world is masking the devastation and carnage in nursing homes, adult care facilities, prisons, slums, and neighborhoods where many of our essential workers live. Another colleague, a psychiatrist in Rio, bemoaned the escalating psychiatric burden and breakdowns of his patients in lockdown. In New York City, some of the first non-COVID patients to return to our emergency rooms in the second or third week of April were decompensated people with florid psychosis. Patients who've been turned out of day facilities or escaped them, patients not receiving mental health services or medications for five weeks as the city shut down. Outside New Delhi, as the state closed down the city, countless poor and immiserated walked hundreds of kilometers to return to their villages. While the city streets are empty, the roads out of the city are full. Central to my experience of coronavirus are the many, many contradictions of care and governance that I and others are experiencing. On any given shift in late March and early April, I took care of scores of incredibly sick patients with all of techno-biomedicine at my disposal, only to watch so many of them die. Why does a country that spends more on healthcare than any other in the world have the most cases and deaths from coronavirus? Why was and is coronavirus testing so limited given the incredible rapidity with which the virus was identified and a PCR test developed? Why do celebrities, athletes, and the wealthy disproportionately survive COVID-19 while the poor and people of color die? Is the novel coronavirus an exceptional event or is it really an everyday event? Prior flu epidemics were hampered by fragmented and defederalized government responses, an overt reliance on the private sector leading to critical shortages, inefficiencies of the profit-driven vaccine marketplace, and unnecessary loss of life. The 1918 pandemic in particular preyed on poverty, poor diets, and substandard housing. Even the more contained 2003 SARS outbreak was eerily similar. It favored the elderly and mostly spared the young. And like the COVID-19 outbreak, a significant number of cases in Hong Kong, Toronto, and Guangdong were among healthcare workers. But those are epidemics and pandemics. What about everyday infectious diseases or endemic infectious diseases? Malaria kills more than 400,000 people a year. AIDS killed 770,000 in 2018. And tuberculosis kills more than 1.5 million annually. 800,000 children die from diarrheal illnesses every year. These deaths are not distributed evenly. The vast majority of all of these deaths from treatable and curable infectious diseases are in Africa and Southeast Asia. Even after and during the AIDS epidemic, leading health experts suggested that the era of infectious disease was over and had been replaced by chronic diseases of lifestyle. Now, let's talk about the flu. Not the pandemic or epidemic kind, but seasonal flu early responses to the coronavirus that likened it to seasonal flu or even diminished its virulence in comparison were specious. While patients with COVID-19 exhibited wildly protean manifestations ranging from myocarditis, renal failure, blood clots, and strokes, none of us who treated these cases will ever forget the pathognomonic pattern of the most severe respiratory form. Bilateral, patchy, ground glass opacities on chest X-ray with extreme silent hypoxia. The novel coronavirus is a unique entity with a particular clinical form that is distinct from the flu. But that doesn't mean we don't have an everyday seasonal flu crisis. Every year in the winter months, our urban emergency rooms see a surge of patients with fever and cough. The number of ER visits doubles in the winter months, especially in areas that are servicing poor, minority, and otherwise marginalized communities. These infectious patients board in the emergency room for hours and sometimes days because there is no capacity. The hospital is full. In the emergency room, they decompensate, sundown, get sicker, infect others from the hallways while waiting for a bed that might never open up. Because of antigenic shift and antigenic drift, influenza is rendered a constantly emerging disease. Flu kills at least 50,000 people in the US per year, and perhaps a million worldwide. Our seasonal flu epidemic is the norm every winter. There's something striking in the notion of the endemic infectious disease or the regular epidemic. How can we still refer to AIDS as an epidemic if it has persisted for 40 years? Infectious diseases modeled and theorized as epidemics resist the rhetorical transformation to endemics the colonial language of epidemics links it to 19th century problems of swamps or miasma or non-human spaces but the modern flu and coronavirus pandemics are specifically the result of human practices and intervention global urbanization agribusiness industrial livestock production and deforestation since i titled this talk biopolitics in the everyday i thought i should at least mention biopolitics and its related biopower Michel Foucault makes scattered references to the concepts throughout his lectures in the late 1970s. While sometimes more suggestive than historical or precise, biopower embraces a series of regulatory policies, disciplinary practices, and epistemic shifts centered on the body and population that we can all recognize. Distinguishing between the rights of the sovereign and those under biopower, Foucault writes, if genocide is indeed the dream of modern powers, This is not because of a recent return to the ancient right to kill. It is because power is situated and exercised at the level of life, the species, the race, and the large scale phenomena of population. Biopolitics operates at the level of the population to optimize health and life. But Foucault asks, if the end of biopower is to increase life, prolong its duration, improve its chances, how is it possible for this political power to kill? It is here that we see the birth of state racism. Race enters directly into the basic mechanism of state power. In fact, racism and biopower are twin operating conditions. The optimization of life under biopower requires the production of a distinction and hierarchy among among races to produce groups within the population. On the one hand, fit and vital, and on the other, unfit, inferior, and endemically unhealthy. The disproportionate mortality rates among minority populations seems to reflect this state intimately. Social distancing might be viewed as a regulatory example of the truth of biopower. Only the fit and vital can engage in social distancing, those that can work at home, while the unfit populations of racialized essential workers who are more likely to take public transportation, to not have second homes to escape the cities, to work in jobs that cannot be performed at home, to live in multi-generational families, to suffer the effects of pollution and overcrowding, must die. And yet, how do we reconcile critiques of biopower with other consensus scientific public health recommendations? Vaccines, masks, improvement in agriculture and food safety, and clean drinking water. Of course, I'm acutely aware that many of these practices are under siege. But what I'm trying to ask is, how can we critique forms of biopower that foster racial discrimination and uneven distribution of health and resources while promoting forms of public health that we want to maintain. For example, potable drinking water, cheap and available vaccines, secure food and drug infrastructures. It's clear that biological existence is now reflected in political existence. We cannot run or hide from this fact. We need to develop new counter discourses that are not merely naive critiques of scientific ideology and power structures. We can and should Challenge the mergers of science with big business and denounce ideology masquerading as science that promotes inequality, racism, or sexism. But we should also confront and denounce science denialism. The idols of the future depend on a humanistic and humanitarian scientific consensus and interdisciplinary collaboration. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Rishi. I mean, so powerful, so sobering. And you've picked up on a number of points that were raised actually last week when we talked about inequality and the week before when we looked at marginalized groups. But thank you very, very much. Um, Thank you. Shane, over to you. Shane, we can't hear you.
1: There we go. I'm unmuted now. Can you hear me now? It's still saying unmute
4: myself.
2: Well, oh, you're unmuted. You're good to go.
4: There. I'm good to go. Okay. Thank you. Apologies about that. Um, uh, thank you for the invitation to speak at this great series. It's very important to maintain this contact between each other during these times. Uh, the communal contact that forms the glue of our everyday social lives, especially in this time of pandemic and social distancing. This latter phrase is, of course, a misnomer, as this series of talks proves. We are maintaining spatial distance, not social distance, in our everyday lives. We still want, indeed must, connect with each other. Hence the sudden rise of social media in our lives. It's hard to think back to a time when Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Zoom and all the rest didn't exist, so transformational are they and so easily incorporated into our everyday lives. This begs the question of why we so quickly and easily use these social media, despite all the scare stories, into our lives. And the answer from evolutionary biology, from neuroscience, from psychology, is straightforward. We humans are a hyper social species uh, with cooperation and altruism at the core of our everyday lives. We help each other out so much, we cooperate so much, that we are rather like a fish swimming in water. We don't notice the water we are swimming in. Even our speaking today uh, relies on three speakers who have never met each other before, compared by yet others, orchestrated within institutions with a history told in centuries, populated by people who work together, facilitated by a technology developed by many others thousands of miles away, and readily and quickly adopted all to allow us to connect to each other. And yet, we overlook this feature of our behavior in favor of fables that are much bleaker. We are going through a terribly harrowing time, there's no doubt about that, uh, with coronavirus challenging our world in ways that few of us are used to. But go back a generation or two though, talk with grandparents about the fear they had of diseases like polio. And through one of the great cooperative efforts undertaken by humans, polio has been virtually eliminated or another example take smallpox a global vaccination campaign involving the cooperation of millions eradicated smallpox a terrible and fearful human disease and it has gone from our everyday lives something we do not have to worry about again now stories of the apocalypse of the end times are one of the great staples of fiction One of the most compelling and shocking visions of our common humanity is presented in a recent book and movie. It tells a harrowing tale of an unnamed father and son walking a pilgrimage of a sort, perhaps even on the road to nowhere. It presents a bleak and cruel view of our humanity, where man is wolf to man, as the old Roman proverb has it. The book and movie I referred to, of course, is The Road by the great Irish-American novelist, Cormac McCarthy. He's not alone in this vision, just tune into to Netflix. But I want to suggest that everything about this book, while utterly compelling, is psychologically, historically, biologically implausible. In fact, it is not even wrong, as the great physicist Wolfgang, Wolfgang Pauli sadly said, of new theoretical notions suggested by another physicist. It, and other visions of the apocalypse, are not a guide to where we find ourselves today. today. In the face of the dangers of coronavirus, we are learning of the 24,000 brave volunteers lining up to test new vaccines to eliminate this new and terrible threat. These are utterly remarkable pro social and altruistic things to do, but comparable in a way to the millions who are serving in hospitals and other healthcare environments every day throughout the world. No other species behaves like this. No other species establishes hospitals to care for their sick and injured. And yet for us, It is, in fact, something utterly everyday. Everyday life in the road is reduced to a perpetual, permanent, everlasting present tense. The same words we use to describe someone suffering from amnesia, in fact. One day in the road is much the same as another, a trudge through ash and death, with little to differentiate one day from the next. So-called mental time travel is pointless, for there is no meaningful differentiation from one day to the next. McCarthy, like so many others, presents a view of our common humanity living our everyday lives as something savage, contained only by a thin veneer of civilization. And when civilization is lost, so are we. Now, I want to ask you to undertake an act of imaginative mental time travel, back some hundreds of thousands of years to the cradle of humanity in Africa. Here, we see something remarkable, in trace fossil sites. These are sites where footprints imprinted in sand and mud have become records of passing humans. There are several such sites often with many hundreds of footprints. And What do they reveal? They reveal the quotidian everyday record of we humans through our prehistory. Walking in groups, carrying children, walking with sticks, occasionally with a broken toe or other deformity, through an inhospitable landscape with food scarce and predators aplenty. And what did we make of it? We humans walked out of Africa and conquered the world, day by day, step by step, in groups, in families, in tribes. We did not conquer the world with one guy marching into the wilderness spear aloft. We did it together. And this is our secret, the one that allows everyday life to proceed so easily. We are a hypersocial, altruistic, cooperative animal supremely sensitive to the behaviour of others. This is why we are so alert to norm breaking. Jump the queue at your local shop while everyone else is standing patiently walking slowly forward and see what happens. No other species is spread around the world in the promiscuous fashion we humans have. We populated the planet by endurance walking in migratory families, tribes and other groups our walking necessarily evolved in a social and group context. Remarkably, merely hearing others activates brain networks supporting social cognition, emphasising our sensitivity to the footfall and presence of others. And walking today is so very important. Perhaps we realise it more now when it is so uniquely challenged, with spatial distancing keeping us sheltering in place. Walking is especially important at this time as one of our few accessible forms of exercise. Even how we walk has changed. It's more social in a way. We used to bump shoulders and perhaps mutter apologies while scrolling on smartphones. Now we watch each other's movements to slightly sashay away and we smile at each other at a safe distance, of course. Uh, We no longer walk mile after mile to gather food. Instead, we can sit and eat easily, perhaps too easily. We have designed movement out of our world and sitting around into it. Recent experiments show that as few as three or four days of inactivity reduces muscle mass in the legs, starting to replace muscle with deposits of fat. This isn't much of a problem when you're 30, but it is when you are 60, needing assistance to stand up out of your chair. And the cure to get up and move about and fight the frailty that can come with ageing by walking. The movement we profit from and have evolved for is walking. Walk we must and walk we should to keep our mental and physical worlds open and to stop the the walls closing in. Our lives, every single day, require it.
2: Thank you Shane, that was fantastic. And again, you just helped put everything into perspective. Very, very powerful uh, contribution. And I don't know about others in the Zoom room, but walking has certainly helped to keep me sane uh, over the past uh, nine or 10 weeks. So uh, how wise and and how right. our third speaker today, Rita, um, uh, obviously uh, over looking so excited to not just hear you, Rita, but I think you're going to share some of your amazing um, artworks with us as well. But over to you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, thank you for
5: everybody at the Hub and the technical team getting everything sorted out. Um, I've been working as a artists in residence at The Hub and I'm um, obviously um, the work that I did wasn't what I had intended. Had I known COVID-19 was on its way, I might have started somewhere else. But um, I go from where I I began. Um, Now I'm going to share the screen so that as I'm speaking, you can see some images. Okay. And this is all going to work beautifully. And there we go. Can you see this? Okay,
0: that looks perfect.
5: Um. Okay. This was just to kind of establish um what I what I do as an artist. Um. I'm from Belfast, and I worked for the better part of my career, 25 years, in based in Belfast, in the belief that um, working locally, um. Somehow, you can learn something that perhaps speaks to the global and I truly believe that that's where we need to be working locally and acting globally or thinking globally and this was an idea to bring an iceberg, to tow an iceberg to Belfast back in 2008 um, as I was becoming more and more concerned with climate change. Obviously, it relates to the narrative of the Titanic um, and the Titanic being built in Belfast um, I felt it was a, a a very important narrative as to how human beings have regarded nature. Um, and at the same time, it was the, the, the duration of the period of our, our peace process, which is kind of staggered along. And um, so it was a kind of a triangular um, idea of the peace process, that narrative of, uh, of um, Titanic and Trying to connect the local up with um, the whole issue of climate change. and because it is the lo- the, the, the imagine- it's through our imagination that we live, um, this was a, an important public art project that I wanted to kind of engage our community at home and beyond. Um, that project developed into something a little bit more manageable, which uh, was called a thaw project and i i used familiar ordinary domestic um, commodities to try and um carry an artistic and historical and political message in this cabinet um there's a series of groceries uh we have um podrick pierce pasta sauce um bee special honey the bee specials being a police force that weren't Appreciated by all, but the idea of releasing ourselves from history. Um, I like to make work that engages in the kind of social conscience or the social consciousness and um, tries to kind of nudge things on a little bit. Um, Now, I'm aware that I have nine minutes, so I don't want to deliberate too long, but you get a sense of the type of work that I've made in the past. Um, I came to Dublin, and the first thing that uh, we presented at the hub was a reinterpretation of Gericult's Raft of the Medusa, a wonderful painting that hangs in the Louvre um, of a shipwreck. Um, Historically, um, people died, there were reports of cannibalism, they were set adrift on the high seas in a a makeshift raft. Um, We presented this in perfect timing on the sidewall of the hub just as Boris Johnson was lifting his pen to sign off on Brexit. um, The the participants in this project were young men who live on the Calvin-Fermanagh border. And the entire dialogue was about, uh, would the Irish border end up in the the ocean? Um, How would we manage this border? How would people move to and fro? Um, And shortly after we presented this in the hub, COVID-19 appeared. Um, And all of a sudden, this image became all of us um, hanging on to the flotsam and jetsam of our lives, trying to kind of figure out what was going to happen. And that momentous moment, that surreal kind of experience of being in Dublin um, and seeing an empty O'Connell Street um, brought me back immediately to Belfast in the 70s and 80s of those kind of bomb scares and know where humans vacated an area and it was quite chilling. Um, On the raft, um, I I also provided the ingredients um, for Irish stew. Um, The the flags, the the nationalities, the identities are still in question and we ended up with a situation where in the north our healthcare system followed London um, and didn't shut down uh, as quickly as the South. And it begs the question of um, borders and separation in times of a pandemic, it would seem good sense for people to pull together because border or this virus and any other pandemic um, makes a nonsense out of people being separated. Um, and how many, how many rafts and and inflatables have we pushed away from the shores of Europe? where people desperately needed um, some help. Um, These are are things that I think we will continue to have to answer and continue to to have to consider um, now that we're in a new normal. Um, I had, um, on the left of the screen here, you see old photographs with the zipper interventions. And I had literally just begun to kind of make some um, work before the virus happened. That looked at borders. That looked at um, the discussions after um, the, re- uh, the rebellion in Dublin. Um, that where the treaty established the border and the resulting civil war that happened. Now, bearing in mind that it, um, next year is the centenary of that border, I was very interested in um, working with. Uh, the archival material um, at Trinity and in Dublin. Um, The the imagery here was in the National Concert Hall and its participants um, in the debates and um, discussions that resulted in partition. Um, The little zippers indicating that there was a division to come. Um, Obviously, um, when the pandemic hit, I retreated to my studio I decided to continue to work in Dublin because I'd committed to the residency and also I felt it was important as an artist to kind of to see this through and so I began watching RTE news in the evening and then the BBC news as anybody from Northern Ireland does in a Janus-headed way but gathering my thoughts and reflecting I made a whole series of very dark drawings which was kind of ominous and fearful and then gradually I started to kind of reach out um, into a sense of uh, social engagement And on the top right hand side there, you can see compassion is good medicine, COVID-19 is 32 county virus. And that was a response as a mother and as an artist, I used to sew name tags into my son's school uniforms. And I liked the idea of putting little kind of mantras or little kind of um, statements of reassurance into garments firstly for all the people at Trinity, but then gradually I thought wouldn't it be interesting or if there was enough protective clothing for the people working in the front line, it'd probably be quite good for them to have something of that um, resilience and reassurance. And um, looking at Bruegel and Bosch and Goya's war etchings, you know, going back to the great canon of, of visual visual art um, as touchstones, I. I gradually began to emerge and, and find my footing um, in my usual way, um, obsessively drawing and allowing some irony and humor to come into the work. Um, I, I mm. found an image from the Spanish flu of a couple um, parading down the street with their little masks on. Um, and I came up with this idea of clovid orange, um, the this, this shadow being very similar to the, the, the COVID-19 virus. Um, another uh, idea that came to me was the idea of making an intervention on public milk cartons um, so that somehow we, would, we could put something of the, the milk of human kindness um, as an artwork onto the breakfast table of, of everybody in Ireland. <laughs> Um, And I actually have had some success with the Dairy Council, so we'll see if that develops. Um, Gradually, I began to kind of reinvent and and, uh, look back over things that I had gathered. I was playing one morning, um, looking at um, a green bra and realising it was exactly the shape of of the lower part of your face. Um, And I started to think about all the women... Um, in the last hundred years, those those feminist, rebellious, practical Irish women, who were silenced or marginalised, and um, I, I started to think um, how interesting it would be to kind of step back and view this pandemic, this moment in time, as a chance to 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 really look at what we've created. It's like. Um, somehow unbelievably the engine of capitalism all over the world has been brought to a a juddering halt and and it's time maybe to it's a perfect time for us to kind of examine it to look at its parts to see how we can reinvent it how to fix it or maybe to kind of to look for something better and i came across a wonderful piece by arundhati roy who is one of my heroes heroines Um, And I I read this, um, in the midst of this despair, it offers us a chance to think, to rethink the doomsday machine we've built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world new. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our, our data banks and dead ideas our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us or we can walk through it lightly with a little with little baggage ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it and i find that really quite inspiring the idea that somehow or other what seemed impossible has actually happened and if we can connect what we are experiencing in this with um, our the issue of climate change and how we are how we are actually living on this planet, how are how how all of us are living on this planet, bearing in mind that the figures today show that 60 million people have been plunged into dire poverty. Um, and it's it really is time to kind of rethink, not just on this small island, um, about how we manage the small resources that we have in terms of joining up our healthcare system. Or perhaps joining up how we um, deliver and manage our arts and culture. I mean, it seems like a ludicrous, um, a ludicrous expenditure to have uh, du- doubling up of it, of lots of of areas that we as human beings could actually get on a lot better with, by sharing. Um, I was watching and rationing my. Um, my my exposure to the media and um, Donald Trump's um, addresses to the nation. Um, And I got up very early one morning and started to make this series of drawings that um, obviously inspired by um, Goya's war etchings. I was looking at this as almost a kind of fairy tale um, of the emperor's new clothing. where he promised to make America great again. He is making America great. Um, and it's interesting, Shane mentioned Cormac McCarthy's The Road, because that was something that I actually had in my head while I was making these drawings. And then I read Fintan O'Toole's article in the Irish Times about the grotesque spectacle of the president openly, openly inciting people, some of them armed, to take to the streets, to oppose the restrictions that save lives, Is a manifestation of a political death wish. What are are supposed to be daily briefings on the crisis, demonstrate a national unity in the face of a shared challenge, have been used by Trump merely to sow confusion and division. They provide a reoccurring horror show in which all the neuroses that haunt American subconscious dancing naked on live TV. it's quite a brilliant article, that, if, if you have a chance to, to see it in full. And finally, um, a series of work that um, I've called The Anatomy of Hope. And I began to, to personally feel um, the, the kind of ominous sense of kind of approaching uh, mortality and gloom. Um, I made a series of heart, by anatomical drawings of hearts, of lungs, of brains, and somehow the restoration of the spring and the emergence of the the spring flowers in the garden came in through the window. And I regard these as something of memorial works for all the people in Ireland and beyond who have died, but particularly in Ireland, because there is such a a deep culture of, the passing of people, of, mm-hmm. of waking people. And here we had a situation where people were dying by FaceTime or by you know by telephone, in the, in the, in the care of loving strangers, but without loved ones. Um, and that ritual of death and that age-old custom of waking and supporting and coming together in friendship and in neighbor in neighborliness seemed so so important. Um, And I want to just finish by uh, reading a small piece from a wonderful book book by a man called um, Kevin Tullis, who actually is from uh, this island here on the west coast, Achille Island. And it's his book, My Father's Wake. Um, For thousands of years, these villages, hold on. For thousands of years, these villages were, and are the last living archives of the oldest faith of humanity. The very same faith that Homer wrote about in the Iliad. He spoke of glorious battles and a clash of heroes on the plains of Troy and keening of of the bereaved and the heart comforting of a dead son in his father's arms and a dead father in his son's arms. A faith that tells us no matter how great the loss, how shattering the death, that we can stand together with the bereaved, wake our
2: dead, lay them to rest, and heal up our mortal wounds. Okay. Thank you very much, Rita. Um, you're always so inspiring, and the work that you've done, um, it just takes us into such an important place as we respond. So the comfort, but also this notion that we need to hit the reset button on the world uh, is 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 so powerful. Uh, I'm gonna so thank you very much. Thank you to all three speakers. We're gonna open it up now. Uh, so the rest of our time is for our audience, and uh, it's just please get your questions into the Q and A function. In terms, I know we've got Dan Carey in the audience. Dan, why don't you kick things off uh, 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 with a question? It'd be great to hear from you.
1: Thank you very much, Jane. Yes, uh, Dan Carey, uh, Moore Institute, NUI Galway. So I'm just down the road from Jane, so to speak. Um,
4: thank you very much. That was a tremendous panel. I had a question for Rishi. Um, there's obviously been various comparisons made by political leaders in particular about, um, about other infectious diseases, the flu in particular, mainly with the goal of diminishing um, the importance of a response. And treating this as a kind of trade-off. Well, a lot of people die in in, in uh, with this disease. They can die. They can die with this one as well. Uh, COVID nineteen. I just wondered if you could help us think about that problem and and the use of that argument.
3: Uh, absolutely, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Uh, it's something that weighed on my mind considerably, because on the one hand, the flu um, epidemic is is real, and it's something that we need to be kind of concerned about, our kind of everyday regular epidemics and pandemics. But this is a completely unique clinical um, entity. I mean, I, you know, just literally in mid-March, um, our ERs were flooded with patients that kind of all had the same disease pattern. They were incredibly sick. It, it wasn't run of the mill flu. This was something completely uniquely different. Um, We had 20 mechanically ventilated or intubated patients in the emergency room at any given time when normally we have one or two. Uh, 80% of those patients that were intubated were dying. So this is a, you know, which is not the case with the flu. The flu is something like 20 or 30%. Most of the patients actually do recover. In flu season, what ends up killing you is a secondary pneumonia, like bacterial pneumonia the patients that die of the flu also tend to actually be much sicker to begin with um, and older or and younger in some flu epidemics as well, but often much sicker. Whereas while these patients that we took care of with coronavirus had pre-existing conditions, we said hypertension diabetes, they weren't they weren't sick. They weren't underlying sick a lot of the times. They were very surprising, the number of 45-year-old women or 52-year-old men or 60-year-olds that were just generally living their lives that got sick and died from this virus. So an incredibly different clinical entity. And it is incredibly disheartening, uh, the use of the flu as a kind of way of diminishing the coronavirus. So thank you.
2: Thanks, Rishi. Uh, Again, I I don't know if, if Shane or Rita want to come in here. We move to the next question. I don't see them signalling, so maybe we'll just move on to the next one. So we've got a great question here from Giovanna, who's in the hub, and she says, thank you for these amazing talks. She'd like to ask a question about the politics and policies about uh, the everyday during the pandemic. It seems that our everyday is being decided almost exclusively by health officials here in Ireland, uh, with uh, very little input from other stakeholders, obviously. It's true in other parts of the world or some other parts of the world. Uh, What would the panel say are the greatest risks of such a narrow perspective of uh, the everyday lives of citizens? And maybe going to start with you, Shane, there. um, And maybe you disagree with the question. But I'd sort of be curious to get a sense of what everybody has to say about that.
4: Uh, I'm not certain I agree with the premise of the question straight up. Uh, there's been lots of controversy about the relationship between NFIT, uh, which is the, the National Public Health Emergency Team, and the advice that it's been giving. Uh, lots of its debate has been in public. You can go online as I've done and look at its minutes. Um, just over the last few days we've seen the ministers and the others being questioned really quite intently uh, in the Doyle, um, which is right and proper in a democracy. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's one of these issues that decisions have to be made, um, and we found ourselves in a situation where the island next door was acting as a kind of a control group for us, which is a, a very strange situation to be in, and we saw the unfolding horror in, in uh, northern Italy in particular. Um, I, I, I don't sense that debate has been muted uh, in this country, I think if you, if you spend any time Uh, uh, either in online fora and newspapers looking at the the kind of standard mainstream media, Uh, the politicians are accountable. They're on the radio all the time. And in the end, um, you know, there's even slightly wild talk about whether or not we're going to have another election or not. In the end, they will be held accountable. Um, And uh, even, uh, you know, however much some may, may scoff, uh, we had a, a number of individuals challenging certain aspects of the uh, the provisions in in uh, the High Court. Uh, now I think that case was personally ill founded but uh, it 's not like our constitutional rights have been suspended. There are no soldiers on the streets. The supply lines still continue, um, and uh, uh, we 've made some interesting discoveries about ourselves. Um, including, for example, that the levels of support that we've been offering uh, people who are unemployed are completely inadequate. Uh, And we're moving in in a direction where I think we're going to have a reshaped conversation about how we look after each other in terms of things like, uh, for example, some provision of a a universal basic uh, income or something of that type. Because uh, the way we've been doing things in the past has changed. So I I, I think this has actually been in a a very peculiar way uh, a great moment for our democracy uh, rather than a subversion of it.
2: That's interesting. Rita, would you agree, and then Rishi will come to you in America where I think things are different, but I'm also conscious, I think we've got Premish joining us from Cape Town. We have colleagues who are joining us from Brazil, and it might be an opportunity for others to get in on this conversation, but, but Rita, from your perspective, would you agree uh, with Shane, or uh, are you more with Giovanna? You're sound, Rita. You need Sorry. to unmute yourself.
5: I think it's very. I think it's very important that we use this opportunity to kind of to really look at um, where we're going. Um, I think that uh, there there are definitely um, issues that need to be addressed, like um, the the very fact that um, the the numbers of people who are dying in the north are considerably higher than those in the south, simply because they followed. Um, procedures from London. There's a question mark there. Um, perhaps there will be another election. I know that the d- debate needs to be broadened right out to be very inclusive. Um, I know the Arts Council have set up a panel um, looking at how the arts actually um, can, can, can function and be supported and help to address um what's what we've been through um i'm sure there are a lot of people that have been traumatized um, there are obviously going to be um uh, much less um resources for us to work with so um yeah i think i'd i'd like to see um kind of full and more open discussion going on um right across the island
3: Um, yeah, I can, I'll, I'll weigh in a little bit, I think, just briefly, yeah. so we have more questions. Um, obviously, the situation here has been incredibly politicized, um, where there are uh, kind of mixed messages coming from our kind of federal government, and then the local and state governments. And there's no federal health care system. I think that, that's what we're experiencing. Uh, in a way, Um, The whole conversation for me about thinking about the role of critiques of biopolitics in relationship to science denialism become very important because how do we, um, as humanists and as other thinkers, uh, get involved with or support consensus scientific um, recommendations, especially when it comes to climate change and uh, emerging infectious diseases, which are deeply linked. Um, But at the same time, how do we still resist authoritarian regimes and make sure that our Um, rights are not um, seized in some particular way. And and I think this is where uh, the difficulty arises. Right now in the US, we're sort of left to kind of a neoliberal management style that just stresses personal responsibility um, and everybody's making their own decisions, which is not a, a sort of a good scenario. I, I'm particularly interested in what this is going to look like in about a year, year and a half. Hopefully, if we have a vaccine, um, what what happens next? You know, does anti-vax rhetoric get involved um, and then sort of dismantling that process? But I think it occurs at all of these, whether it's masks or social distancing. Certainly, there's a more draconian version of this that thankfully, you know, uh, we're not there. But um, even before that, I think individuals probably would benefit from sort of clearer guidance uh, and not have to make individual assessments of risk, which seems like the 21st century now where people without expertise, none of us have expertise in most of this, are having to make individual choices on what we should or shouldn't do uh, because there isn't a kind of strong or centralized messaging system.
2: Mm, Thank you. Um, I don't know, Premish, I'm hoping it's Premish Lalu from Cape Town, but it may not be. Um, Are you with us Premish? Because it would be lovely if you brought the South African Cape Town perspective to the conversation.
1: It is me. Oh,
2: great. Um, Fantastic. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. We'd love to hear more about your sense of this conversation and, and, and what it means from your perspective in South Africa.
1: In fact, I was just uh, typing my question and I, you know, I was very glad that Rishi brought up the question of biopower. And I've been thinking increasingly about the consequences for the category of race after the coronavirus and what it does to the idea of freedom, for example. And since you know, there's a moment of ground clearing uh, that we're experiencing now, I wonder whether the new constellations of the sciences, the arts and the humanities might begin thinking about other ways to conceive of freedom, uh, you know, And I wonder whether, in some sense, we've conceded far too much ground on this idea. You know, it's dispersed its meaning and its content to such an extent that it it just fails us under these conditions when the human is in 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 dire kind of uh, in a dire predicament. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on you know how we might bring together you know, the competing disciplines and, and inquiries um, at the institutional site of the university, but beyond that as well, in thinking about, you know, you know new ways of of, of of conceiving of freedom.
2: Great question, Pramesh. I don't know, who, Shane, why don't you start with that one? Uh, but I'd love to hear what the whole panel have to say.
4: <clears throat> yeah, I am, so I'm, I'm reminded of, of the famous distinction between freedom from and freedom to. Um, and that hasn't really been talked about. So I mentioned polio in uh, my talk and I mentioned that very specifically because my grandfather uh, had polio and uh, he wore a caliper on his leg all his life Um, and uh, I grew up though in an environment where I'm I'm free from uh, polio but that doesn't mean necessarily I'm free to uh, do anything. So I think we, we, we need to think really quite clearly about what sort of freedoms uh, we're talking about and, and in what context. Uh, and again, just thinking of polio, I, I was in India a number of years ago when the then uh, Minister for Health was, was very pleased to be able to announce that India had become polio free. Uh, but we know uh, one of the, uh, the countries to the north uh, uh, health workers were uh, being attacked uh, while they were trying to administer polio vaccines, um, which would have, of course, made people uh, free from predation or free from disease. So, you know, I, I think we need to think these things through uh, a little bit more. And, and the issue of vaccine hesitancy and uh, vaccine refusal is, is is one, to my mind, uh, which kind of speaks to the kind of core of this. Uh, When you look at the libertarian literature on vaccines, people refuse it because it's their right to die if they so wish of of the disease. Um, They feel free to do that, but they don't worry about the spillover costs where others are concerned. Um, And I I, I think, you know, when we speak about freedom, um, I use the image of of, uh, a guy going off into the wilderness with a spear and that's not how we conquered the world. We conquer the world together. So our freedom arises necessarily together and it's exercised uh, between each other. Um, a freedom where you're out in the desert by yourself is one that's necessarily a very, very circ- circumscribed uh, freedom. Beyond that, I'm not certain I have anything deeper to say, but uh, I, I think that distinction, uh, which goes back uh, qu- quite a few years, uh, is well worth thinking about. Thank you. Chemish,
2: I-, I know you've still got... Uh, speaking rights, if that's the right word. Do you want to come back on that and, and maybe just speak to a little bit from your own perspective, and what you think you'd like to see?
1: Yeah, look, I think that's an intriguing formulation, and I, I was not expecting that. That's a very, very beautifully crafted response, because I'm, I am worried about, you know, the way in which biopower is a condition of constraint you know, and in some sense, we have not produced an affirmative concept of biopower. Yeah. So so that's what I'm, I'm wanting us to think about, you know, as as intellectuals, as scholars, as public intellectuals, you know, how might we begin to reconstellate the domain and terrain of freedom, so that it does not become the kind of mechanism that is used as a kind of standpoint against a vaccine, um, but that has the kind of deep conceptual and aesthetic meaning that was given to it in the struggles against colonialism over so many decades. So I'm wanting, you know, it's an open-ended question. I was very intrigued at where you went. Uh, and I, I think there's, you know, lots of room for, for conversation there. And I'm, I'm trying to argue that, you know, we might be in a, in a space where we need to reimagine the university and the relationships across the kind of spaces and fields of, of inquiry in the university.
2: Yeah,
1: so, so thank you very much.
2: But thank you, Pramesh. Uh, Rishi, do you want to get in on the conversation and that reimagining, not just the university? I know Rita has great things to say there too, but Rishi, do, do you want to get involved at this point?
3: Yeah, let me just say a couple of things. Uh, Pramesh, fantastic question. And uh, I think, uh, and Shane's response was really, really valuable to try to kind of sort through it, because it's it's what I was trying to think about too, a sort of Different way of formulating biopower or a kind of a positive formulation, one that is potentially connected to the possibility of freedom. It's certainly a, a world that we prefer, right? One in which we have potable water um, and one in which we have certain kinds of regulatory mechanisms in place. But how to how to how to engage in that and not seed ground. I think that's a really important point too. We don't need to, to give this away to others. Um, in terms of kind of reimagining, the one thing I I might say is at the level of the university, to me, one thing to think about is I think we overdetermined the major, and uh, I think we we have overdetermined our kind of separation of our arts and our sciences, um, and and some way to work through that. You know, the buzzword has been interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, but I, I really actually strongly think that that we're doing disservice uh, to. Ways of thinking by separating these out so, um, you know, uh, uh, distinctly. I, I just don't think that it, that makes sense to me. So, one way I would imagine is, you know, re, uh, rethinking about how our universities are set up in terms of majors and departments. Yep.
2: On, on that rethinking, Rita, you've been in Trinity for a couple of weeks actually, given the COVID outbreak, but you know, how can the universities help us to rethink? How should we use this opportunity to rethink our world?
5: Well, I'm, I, I'm a great advocate in, in kind of interdisciplinary thinking. And I think the, the hub is a wonderful example of that. Um, but the, the, the whole idea of perceiving ourselves as being a, a developed and, and growing and um, advancing um, civilization, I mean, I put a question mark beside that. I think we've been so kind of domineered by profit-driven, permanent growth-demanding existence that, you know, our food has been destroyed. um, Our immune systems, obviously, are as a result of that are are, are weakening. and, And this continual pursuit of profit and growth is doing us great harm. And I think that conversation, right across the board in terms of health, well-being, um, how we live, how we function, how we engage with each other, um, really needs has a moment to kind of be rethought. To really, you know, for, it, it's important that we we do this, but never more so than when we're made to. And we've been made to stop. We've been made to actually take this moment to kind of, you know. St- Look after ourselves or, or to, for our own safety to kind of uh, um, cocoon or stay in lockdown and and surely that should mean that we're, we're capable of, of actually thinking a
2: little deeper and a little broader um, and that should begin in universities of course. And again, it's how it links back to the rethinking of democracy and, and what that means. Uh, so, again, you know, powerful stuff there. I'm going to take another question, uh, this time from Courtney. Uh, Courtney, you're in the Zoom room. Why don't you ask your own question rather than me reading it out for you? I know you were there a minute ago. I hope you're still with us. Hi.
4: Yeah, yeah. Courtney,
2: <laughs> hi. Over to you.
4: Um, yeah, the question I had was for Dr. Goyle. Um, I was really interested when you were speaking about the endemics. Um, I'm in the School of Creative Arts, so that's quite new to me. Um, To even to hear that term, I I had to go look it up. Um, But I was wondering if you were speaking about how what's happening now tracks in regards to who is most affected. Uh, during, with these endemics, but also with this pandemic. And do you think that that means that there's a good chance that once there's a vaccine and a treatment's been developed for COVID-19, that this is just gonna, the spotlight's gonna go away. It's gonna gonna become another endemic that will continue to affect people of color and lower household incomes, but that without the spotlight, not much is really gonna happen to help those people.
3: Um, Thank you. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I think I was just trying to highlight the uh, that's transition, um, that that actually speaks to kind of Primesha's point about colonialism and epidemics, which are often kind of written in this uh, sort of back into the colonial narrative, uh, versus endemics, which is actually kind of what maybe biopower is really particularly interested in. Epidemics, we deal with in a kind of 19th century way or even earlier, right? We, do, we don't use the science of epidemiology. We don't use our kind of vaccine treatments. It's more quarantine and isolation uh, as a treatment, uh, kind of behavioral measures. Whereas these endemic illnesses are supposedly kind of what's in the baseline population. And I'm just kind of interested in thinking about how we, what, what happens when we move between those terms or why in particular we keep the term epidemic for what seemed to me like endemic illnesses. And I think, they're, 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 I think using the term epidemic makes it, as you pointed out, a kind of singular event, right? Uh, one that kind of has a beginning, middle and end, and we can mark it off and it's exceptional. Uh, and I was just trying to highlight the idea that epidemics are everyday events so that we can maybe approach them the same way we would other things, other diseases, right? Heart disease, cancer, um, diseases supposedly of lifestyle.
2: Thanks Rishi. Um, Ellie, you've got a great question. Uh, And again, I'm going to invite you to ask it yourself. Ellie? Can somebody release? I'm I'm unmuted. Sorry about that Jane. Brilliant. Go ahead. Um, I just wondered if the panel could speak a bit more about what they see as the lasting impacts of the pandemic on human behavior. So will we all now, from now on, be bulk buying flour just in case? And um, Will we start to prioritize access to green spaces? Will we still be going for those walks that, you know, that we're all going on right now? And will the proposals, for example, in Ireland for communal living lose favor? What do, we, what do you think we're going to be seeing in the next few months, years, decade? Okay, Rita, why don't we start with you? And you need to unmute yourself, Rita.
5: Hopefully this will see the very beginning of um, town planners, city planners, reinventing or rethinking um, how we move around the place. Um, they, there's a, there's a, a serious requirement for um, you know, how, how children are being schooled. Um, I mean, four year olds are now kind of having experienced months of um, being removed from uh, what would be normal engagement. You know, how's that going to affect how they are later on as as adults or as, you know, kind of older children? Um, But mostly I think the designers and the people that are creating the spaces that we live in are being given a real wake up call and a chance to kind of put their best foot forward.
2: Thank you, uh, Rishi.
3: You know, the one thing that um, strikes me, and, uh, and again, this is, my, this is probably different globally, and I think it's important to highlight that. I mean, New York City um, really just got kind of ravaged by this, right? So uh, I, our, our experience is so um, uh, harrowing was the word that Shane used, and, uh, and I think it's, there, there will be behavior changes. I mean, certainly at, a, at a, in the hospitals, the hospitals have become even more frightening places for people who work there, I think, and patients um, patients don't want to return to the hospital. There's a kind of, you know, there's a sense that those are places that they'll get sick at, or, um, you know, I'm not sure what else is attached to that. And in our work environment, we are now wearing masks, right, 24 um, seven. And I think that will continue for quite some time throughout the hospital. And that sort of changes how you see and are seen by your patients. Um, it, so there is a kind of an alienated experience now, uh, but seeing colleagues, seeing patients. Um, the, the, the medical exam is actually a little bit, you're, you're sort of not loathe to examine patients, but you, you actually approach them with a little bit more reserve and a little bit more distance. Uh, so, so, I don't know how long, uh, you know, I agree with Shane, I, I think we're, we're social animals, and uh, I'd like to imagine that you know, we're, we're going to just continue, but there's a kind of tribalism quality here that may get exacerbated where, you know, you're social with your own groups, but not all groups.
2: Thanks, uh, Rishi. Shane, do you want to get in and unmute yourself?
4: Unmute myself. Um, <laughs> So yeah, there's a, a a lot of things to say. So I I, I won't say any of or mo- most of them, uh, but I, I I can see norms shifting uh, behaviorally in in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, contact between people who don't know each other is going to disappear. We're not going to have handshakes anymore. We're going to bow, uh, or we're going to raise our hand, or we're going to do things like that. So behaviors that have been very common uh, will just disappear because they it won't be possible anymore. But the social connection won't uh, because this is the way we we work with each other and live with each other. I think there's going to be massive changes in the world of work. Um, Communal workspaces uh, of the type that have been engineered since the 1950s uh, uh, on the WeWork model, I don't see continuing at all. Um, uh, And and in fact, I've seen some reports from uh, some of the, the large real estate agencies already rolling out new designs for social distancing at work um, where uh, you're going to have different colored floors, you're going to have UV lighting, you're going to have copper door handles, um, there's going to be new norms around making us wash our hands, those kinds of things. Um, I think home baking has had a bit of a revolution in the last couple of months, which is quite remarkable. I think that that would be great to see. Um, But I think in, in the longer term, You know if we're going to treat problems like this seriously the kinds of issues that Rishi has has brought up in respect of inequality of income are going to have to be dealt with very very seriously and the the kinds of points Rita has made about uh, public transport all of those kinds of things are are going to happen and the the thing I worry about because I I, I don't know what the answer here is uh, we're going to have a much more intrusive uh, surveillance state and I I can imagine us having to give uh, swabs regularly um, so that we're genetically profiled, we're, we're virologically profiled. Uh, I can imagine us having to have temperature reads taken regularly. There's going to be a whole load of things like this. Our mobile phone may become a lab in the pocket that uh, the government is a, is able to legitimately extend its interest in us to. So I you know, there's a, a whole lot of things like this that will happen. On the positive side, um, I don't regret not having to take the dart into work every day. Um, That's kind of nice, you know. So there are changes like that that aren't aren't bad. And I think we're gonna have to really, really think about our green spaces uh, much more than we have done. Um, But that's that's another longer conversation. So I should stop there.
2: Thanks very much, Shane. Um, I I, I, I think many of us uh, look at the autumn and as you see yesterday, Cambridge has decided it's basically gonna do all its teaching online next year. And yet you hear the University of Notre Dame is uh, going to, bring everybody in two weeks early so they can go through quarantine and basically lock everybody uh, on the campus on South Bend for eight weeks. Uh, Anyway, it'll be very interesting to see how all of this unfolds and you're right to highlight the sinister as well as some of the good. I'm very keen to draw in Laura Izara, who's joining us. She's one of our collaborators in Brazil at the University of Sao Paulo. Laura, sometimes your um, connections aren't so great If you can ask your question, I would love you to do it. If not, I'll ask it for you. But Laura, any chance that you can actually join us? Maybe not. I'm not hearing a response there. So let me ask Laura's uh, question. Um, So it's greetings from Sao Paulo. Thinking of post-pandemic policies, which will have to rely mainly on countries' solidarity. Do the speakers believe that governments around the world are prepared to cope with the health system's unemployment and other political and social effects of the pandemic if the majority of them are not practicing this solidarity right now? That's a huge question, Laura, but obviously a hugely important one. And again, I don't know which of our speakers would like to tackle that one as best you can. Uh, uh, Rita, do you want to start? I think. Please. Okay. Unmute myself. I,
5: I think one of the biggest and most depressing things about Brexit. Was the fact that the whole kind of dream of Europe and the whole um, the whole sense of us being together as a kind of a, a group of countries was you know was w- was being halted by Britain, and somehow or other, um, if we couldn't even do that, it doesn't it doesn't bode very well for countries cooperating, and and getting beyond themselves in the kind of. Collective sense for the greater good of all, um, and I, I know that's very depressing and very um, pessimistic. Um, and I keep wanting to believe that human beings do their very best in adversity. So who knows? Um, it it may well be possible that after we go through this winter that's ahead of us, um, more sense will will kind of will will be revealed, and we will be forced to cooperate and to look after each
0: other.
2: Thank you. Rishi?
3: You know, I think it's hard to, to offer anything but pessimism on that for me. Um, I, I, just, I, I just don't see I, how, I, at least in the short term, the, the, our income gaps, at least in this country, will only increase. I think the... Um, you know, And we're gonna have a rush to see who even gets the vaccine first, right? I mean, I think even if we have a vaccine for this, I can imagine the same set of concerns coming up about who gets vaccinated and who doesn't and when they do and when they don't. Um, uh, and the other thing is that this virus will, you know, go through the population. It will be here for however long it is. Um, a certain percentage of the people will die. And, but all of those will fall disproportionately on uh, the people that are expendable according to this world on some level. And so th- th- I think that, you know, all, a lot A lot of these biosecurity measures will be ones that are promoted by the people that um, sort of can kind of obtain them, can further isolate, can further sequester and further protect. You know, so how do we mitigate risk across the board? And that that is where we do need to think about how to I guess reinvest, reimagine our global health structures. You know, I mean, whether it's the WHO, uh, it, it, that seems incredibly critical. Just to 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 kind of economically, emotionally, intellectually reinvest in um, a kind of global body that can can govern these kinds of things. Mm.
2: It's a really tough one. Um, Shane, I don't know if you, this global solidarity, if you want to add anything, and then I'll well, try to take another question. Please go ahead. Yeah, I,
4: I'll just very briefly say that, uh, unlike the previous two speakers, I'm much more optimistic. I think the trajectory of history is, is uh, one that uh, often seems to reverse itself, but uh, generally uh, because of the spread of education is going in the direction that we would like. Nobody is following the UK out the door. Um, uh, and we're seeing slowly but haltingly the 27 countries managing to put together solidarity funds um, the principle has been accepted the, uh, the size of them is, is of course another matter and uh, humanity has been through much much worse before you know uh, you know if you take a historical perspective on this um, go back 150 years to where uh, Rita is currently sitting. I know Mayo very well. My wife is, is from not very far from where you're sitting. That was ground zero of the Great Famine. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Ireland now is an incomparably different place to the time when we lost a quarter of our population. Um, you know, so it's easy to get ground down by the everyday awfulness that can uh, appear and, and Rishi's heartfelt Comments on what's happening in the U.S. You know, make one feel a little bit despairing. But I I, I think if we can stand back in some way and take a longer view, uh, we end up in a slightly better place.
2: I was going to say, "So speaks the historian," but of course, (laughs) so speaks the psychologist. Uh, um, Last question, and I'm going to invite Emmanuel Sada, who I believe is joining us from New York. Emmanuel, would you like to to ask uh, your 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 question? Hopefully you're still with us. Emmanuel. have we lost
0: her? No, I'm here, but I could not, uh, I could not uh, <laughs> find the unmute button on, the, on, on this uh, version of Zoom. Uh, thank you for, for great talks, um, uh, really fascinating. I, ha- I had a question uh, for Rishi, um, and uh, in a way it's both a question about the everyday presence of biopower, mm-hmm. Or maybe even more the the I think the foundational notion of biopower, which is population, and how the crisis may have revealed that this notion has completely as transformed, uh, and in a way that are I think questioning even the way um, I mean national policies and maybe even international global uh, health policies. So. Um, the, the just to give some some, uh, some 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 context here to my question it seems to me that the that that foucault's uh, way of thinking of biopower was predicated on a very modern notion of population as a organic whole as a biological whole right with animated with a specific kind of life which was not the individual life but some kind of Biological collective life right measured in birth rates and death rates and 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 very close to that of race, right so that's what that's foucault's vision of 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 um, uh, i mean definition of population as a central um, object of uh, application of of biopower and what I found most uh, fascinating uh, in the past uh, few weeks is actually that um even though We're still surrounded by by information that is very much uh, predicated on on the notion of population, that the idea of a curve, right? uh, Or the idea of models, right, of of the the disease and so on and so forth. All of this belongs to that uh, kind of intellectual framework of 19th century and 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 is really much linked to the notion of a, of a population again as a as a alive entity right but on the other hand i'm also incredibly um uh, struck in a way at least today in the u s living in New York and having goes through having gone through the the crisis in New York not as a doctor obviously but as a as a new york denizen let's say uh, I was struck by the um i 'm struck by the relative indifference to um you know to death rates right People speak about a thousand two thousand a day, and it seems to to be going you know like nobody really uh, is even scared about this, it has become part of the normal. So for me, there's almost like an everyday sensitive, you know, affective dimension of this. I'm sorry, since- I'm No, well, a-
2: thank you, Emmanuel. I'm gonna stop you there, just just simply and let Rishi respond, just because we're starting to run out of time. Sure, sure, sure. Thank right. you so much for that very powerful intervention. Rishi, do you want to just respond to it? Uh,
3: yeah, no, I mean, I think, Emmanuel, thank you for that question. Uh, I could just hear you speak about it more probably. <laughs> yeah. It be better. Um, but but I, I know what you're saying. And I think there's something about numbers, right? Whether that's statistical indifference or how numbers are used by governments to, um, as an anodyne, I mean, you, you, you lose the individual, right? I mean, I think Camus writes about this in The Plague, too. That's an important scene uh, where, it, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions get lost and don't mean anything as opposed to the to the individual. And, and I think they're probably used that way in some case. I mean, when Foucault was talking about biopower, I, there's sort of two aspects, right? There's the anatomical politics, um, which is the kind of individual body uh, and the disciplinary mechanisms. And then there's the uh, biopolitics dimension, which is more the kind of regulatory and population. So and in a way, I think both of those are sort of still at play moving between that, that kind of individual body and, population and we're sort of moving back and forth between them but i think i'm sort of haunted by that too by the 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 kind of indifference maybe to to large numbers that we have or our inability to think about them it also think reminds me a little bit of our inability to think in long historical contexts, right hundreds of thousands of years sort of global context there seems to be something linked there in our inability to think about large numbers you know
2: folks we're out of time um uh but i i don't know if shane or rita are burning to say anything else uh in response to emmanuel's question no okay or observation Uh, then maybe we will just wrap things up simply because um i mean the time just flies in these before though I thank our speakers, or we all thank our speakers in, in the customary way. Uh, just to simply say a survey has been shared with you, it's great if you can give us your feedback. Uh, we'll also share a link to the survey via email. Um, our final workshop, uh, a Democracy Without a Public Sphere, is next Wednesday at 4.30 uh, Irish time or, or British Standard Time, uh, and 11.30 at New York Time, or or Central, I guess it is there. Um, Again, we'll email you with the registration link. Um, We've got Melody Barnes, uh, who is just a phenomenal person. Uh, She used to work with Obama, and she's now leading the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia. We have Bill Emmett, who's the former editor of The Economist, and he's actually chairs the Trinity Longroom Hub board. And then we've got Fintan O'Toole, who is an Irish uh, Times columnist, was mentioned uh, earlier, uh, and uh, I I suspect well-known to to many of us uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Anybody who wants more uh, details about the whole series, who wants to listen back to any of the workshops, obviously those details are on our website. Um, And there are some fabulous events coming up both in The Hub and The Hayman. In The Hub we're about to move to an art and science reading group which actually is going to pick up on some of the themes that Rita raised in her talk. Uh, That's starting at 6.30 uh, Irish time. It's called Spinning Yarns, Pathology and Poetry. Um, And then tomorrow we're launching a fabulous series of books. The Cambridge University Press Irish Literature in a, a Transition, six volumes. So join us for that launch at four o'clock Irish time tomorrow. And then the Hayman has a whole raft of amazing uh, stuff going on today at four o'clock in New York time, 9 p.m. our time. You've got Building Public Series, Humanities Combating Isolation, um, that podcast as research. And then tomorrow the Hayman is got its next instalment in Care for the Polis It's an online series of collectives of care so please join us for those check our websites out um i want to thank a few people especially francesca and the team in dublin who make the technology work so smoothly you're an amazing team you've done a great job again today yeah no really i want to thank our audience i mean you guys are just phenomenal and your questions have been brilliant Obviously, everybody who has contributed to the conversation, we really, really appreciate it. And above all, though, we want to thank our three speakers. You guys are absolutely fantastic. So we're going to thank you in the customary way uh, uh, in our living rooms, our porches, our bedrooms. So thank you, everybody, and look forward to seeing you next week. But for now, stay safe and goodbye the hub is about impact the hub is for everyone here's to the next 10 years